Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Avago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Welcome to our special program today on the birthday of the United States Army with our virtual coverage of the Eurosatory Land Warfare Exhibition in Paris this week. The first time this great event is being held in person in four years. The 2020 edition was canceled because of the COVID pandemic. Later in the program, a look at French defense giant Talus's new battlefield command and control network, the combat digital platform. But first, we talked to United States Army Major General Peter Andrzejczyk, the Deputy Commanding General of the U.S. Army Europe and Africa, who joined us from the sidelines of the exhibition. He's a soldier with a truly global experience base, having served in Europe, the Pacific, as well as the Middle East and Afghanistan. He is now headquartered, of course, in Wiesbaden, Germany, but his next job will be as U.S. European Command's J3 or Operations Director at UCOM headquarters in Stuttgart, Germany. Here's our conversation with Major General Andrzejczyk. Sir, thanks so very much for joining us. Honor having you on the program. Ivago, hey, thanks. I really appreciate that. And an honor to be here with you. Uh, an absolute pleasure uh, at a very important time. Obviously, U.S. Army Europe, uh, the uh, you know, playing a very central role in the defense of Europe and the alliance uh, as uh, Russia continues to wage its brutal campaign uh, against uh, Ukraine. Uh, I know that the uh, United States uh, Army has a very, very disciplined lessons learned uh, process, but you're far closer to the front lines than a lot of us uh, armchair strategists here in Washington, D.C. Um, what are the most important lessons that are being learned from the course of this conflict, not just about a potential adversary, but about what um, what we need to do to step up our game, particularly uh, in Europe? So, Vaga, that's a, that's, a, that's a fantastic question. And there is a very in-depth uh, lessons learned uh collection effort that we got going on that's looking at it from from multiple echelons and levels um and, and a lot of what we get right now is really observations um but but i can tell you the hard things um that that, that we look at from our perspective um let me start with number one is from a logistic standpoint um you know our, our ability to execute um logistics and being able to go from a, a fort to a port and then to, uh, to deploy to another port and then get combat power on the ground, I think it underscores the investment and why we invest so much in our logistics formations um, in, in our army because they're, they're so important to getting us to where we need to be uh, properly postured. And I think, you know, I think there's a lot of folks on the outside from observations uh, that, that we see you know, within the Ukraine that also underscores the importance of, of logistics. But, but those are really observations at this point in time. And we'll learn more about that, but, but there's no doubt it reinforces uh, the, the need to have a, a very robust and, and significant uh, logistics and sustainment program uh, to be able to, one, get to where you need to get to and then be able to sustain your organization there. So I think that's that's probably the first part. I didn't know if you wanted to have any questions or follow on uh, that well, particular point. I, 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 Indeed, and I just want to point out to the audience, right? I mean, one of the uh, the great efforts that the chief uh, and the army leadership have had underway is to focus on the blocking and tackling, right? As we uh, have drawn down from Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, the focus on getting back to those core war fighting skills. And we've had uh, the pleasure of talking to folks at 21st Theater Sustainment 
uh, and, and more broadly across the Army logistics uh, enterprise. What are some of the other uh, lessons you're learning, whether about precision fires, whether about even, you know, basics of artillery, uh, right? I mean, for some, it's a reminder that infantry matters if you have armored vehicles, because uh, you'll be vulnerable to uh, anti-tank weapons, uh, you know, as the Israelis found in 1973, every army officer learns that. What are, what are some of the other subtle lessons that you're picking up in terms of looking at uh, how the Russians are prosecuting their campaign and what that means for a potential future, um, uh, uh, the future of land warfare in Europe? So I think the future of land warfare, I mean, the, the Army has been looking at this for a couple of years and what we describe as large scale combat operations and, and making sure that we go from a brigade to a division, you know, that, that is really the centerpiece that we build everything around and fight with. And that division's got to be fully enabled, right? There's, we, we talked sustainment already, but to your point, you know, fires capabilities, you know, for, for, the, for the most part of the past 20 years, that, that kind of took a back seat because we didn't mass fires. We didn't need to be able to mass fires and tie fires to maneuver. Um, so, so it's no doubt, right, that, uh, that at least what we've seen, you know, in the, in the Ukraine, right, is, is, is the ability to synchronize those two efforts. And, and we've been working on that in our combat training centers for years, right? So there's an aspect of it that's all about mass and, and having the right mass of artillery fires synchronized with maneuver. And, and to your other point, the value of precision weapons and, and its role and, and where it does uh, play a part, which also reinforces where we're trying to go with multi-domain operations, because we're, we're talking lethal fires. And I, and I think what we've also seen is the value of the information environment, um, the value of, from a cyber perspective, not just defense, but, but some of the other uh, value that cyber brings, uh, brings to the fight. So we this term that we use convergence so you can bring it all to bear. Um, if you can do that, right, it gives you a decided advantage. And so I think, so we're seeing that. And, and, and so obviously the information environment is playing a huge role in, in what we're seeing right now as well and, and, and trying to learn from that every day. Um, let me uh, take you uh, to what the Alliance is doing in the United States uh, Army Europe and Africa's role in uh, building up European capabilities. A lot of focus here, obviously, on what Ukraine's been doing and what's happening with the fighting, but a little bit less on the extraordinary surge of manpower and capability into Europe, as well as across the Alliance. Walk us through um, what has been happening over the past couple of months, what will be happening into the future, and the United States Army Europe's role in that. So if, if you're, and Bobby, you're, you're getting at is in terms of what we put on the ground to, uh, from a, started with a rotational force, but you're also asking what we put into here uh, upon yes, a crisis, sir. what we deployed. Yeah, so, you know, relatively quickly, the, you know, from an administration standpoint, they're trying to balance what actions are provocative um, and, and trying to, you know, strike that balance to make sure we don't push anything too fast, too soon. But once the, once the political... Um, side of things decided that, that we need to uh, move units forward. And that, that goes to my point about, you know, we're, we, we've spent a lot of money on defense and for good reasons. It's our ability to move, you know, it's about 10,500 uh, people uh, forward soldiers in, into the fight. So we were able to notify, um, you know, 1st Brigade, 3rd Infantry Division within four days. You know, we're putting them on airplanes. They're out drawing Army pre-positioned stocks and getting them into Grafenbeer, and then they're, they're starting to fire and screen tanks. We're doing the same thing with uh, HIMARS artillery out of Fort Bragg. They're drawing APS here, Army pre-position stock, and then they're also uh, you know, starting to work their artillery tables. Um, you know, the other part is we brought 18th Airborne Corps and the 82nd forward uh, to, uh, for an assure and deter mission, and they drew all APS, and we pushed them straight into Poland. 
And so it's, it's pretty remarkable, but it goes back to my earlier point about lessons learned about the value of logistics. And that's not just on the Army side. Um, it, it is really uh, from a joint perspective, because if it weren't for the Air Force and their ability to, to move that much equipment and soldiers that quickly, we wouldn't have been able to, to do that. And, and that, you know, as you look across NATO, that, that is one of the things that, uh, that we have a decided advantage of is that uh, we, is we have the ability and the capability to do things that, that others can't, and we can do it fast and we can do it at, at, at mass. And, and just on the question, sir, you talked about the importance of uh, logistics, and we talked to Major General James Smith uh, at 21st Theater Sustainment a couple of years ago. And I know this process began, Mark Hurtling was talking about it, Ben Hodges, and then, of course, General Cavoli uh, about improving sort of logistics. And, of course, your field of expertise, combat engineering, right? If you can't get over the bridge, nothing. If you can't get across the river, nothing gets across the river. Um, how, do, how do you rate how we're doing and improving our logistical capabilities, not just uh, in the theater, army-wide, but also alliance-wide. So I think alliance-wide. I, I, you know, I don't, I don't know enough, Vago, about the because uh, I have not been around to all, to all the all the NATO countries in the alliance. But I, but I do know some of these unique capabilities and enablers. Um, they're, they're not there, and and I think that's that's really um, it's understood. They they don't have the ability to invest in it. And I, I think there's a new opportunity. I think with a lot of these countries reinvesting in their military. I think there's a tremendous opportunity to relook what all these enabling capabilities that exist out there. Um, and then where, where's the right place, um, you know, to, to, to put them and how do we help them prioritize? I think is another piece of this because some of these nations can't afford to buy everything and they, nor, nor do they need to. And so I, I think when we look at uh, saber strike, the recent exercise we did, that, that does demonstrate that. So we do get to get, get to see that when we run these exercises uh, with, with allies and partners. And how is connectivity working within the alliance? You know, you, you mentioned multi-domain operations. Obviously, uh, U.S. military focuses join all domain command and control. Um, talk to us a little bit about um, the connectivity that's happening within the alliance, because I know that alliance leaders are working to make sure that we try to be as seamless as we can in our communications and coordination and do it in a secure fashion, as we've learned the Russians being unsecure uh, have paid a terrible price for that. Yeah, so when, when you're looking at interoperability and, you know, the mission partner environment, and, you know, General Cavoli has put a lot of emphasis on that o- over the years. Um, so whether it be through warfighters, you know, at the division through core level, um, or whether it be at the tactical level where you're using other capabilities to, 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 to talk to uh, allies and partners, there's, there's been a lot of emphasis on that. So we're able to actually deploy units out here get them what we call is their third stack, their mission partner environment, and then, and then move them um, and be able to, to communicate from the beginning and not you know, stumble our way through trying to establish communications afterwards. We've been able to hit that really from, from the beginning. And we continue to emphasize that to include all the way up to our headquarters where we don't necessarily operate in a US secret only or uh, real NATO. We're going also to a, a mission partner environment so that uh, we're, we're communicating on every platform that we possibly can more broadly across the, the alliance and with partners. Um, let me uh, take you uh, to uh, what is it that you need to better uh, do uh, your job? Despite the command's importance uh, in uh, Europe and Africa, the Army still faces manpower cuts in this budget. Obviously, Congress is assessing that. The storied 11th uh, Armored Cavalry Regiment, one of the core U.S. Uh, formations in Europe, uh, also faces cuts. Um, there is you know, always a discussion in Washington and across the alliance about what um, the alliance should be doing for Ukraine. What does Washington need to be doing for the U.S. Army Europe 
uh, to make sure that you have the right capabilities, uh, God forbid, if they're needed in the, in the future? What are some of the things that we need to be doing to build the command up, even as we focus increasingly on the Pacific? So, Vago, I think we're, I think we're getting, we're getting all the support we need. I, you know, um, you know, we're, we're working through with General Cavoli the last couple of years. They've been looking at posture reviews, and, and we've been getting structure added back into the force. There are still some decisions that uh, that are pending, and as you know, as we go into the Madrid summit here shortly, from a NATO perspective, they're going to be looking at that. So, I, I will tell you that we're getting the support that we need from the administration. You know, the question is whether it's forward posture that's assigned versus rotational. Um, you know, I think General Cavoli in his recent t- testimony to, to the SASC was pretty clear that we're going to rely heavily on, on a rotational capability. And, you know, there's, there's value in that because we're testing what we just talked about, where we actually have to deploy units out here um, and their equipment has to be, because um, the rotational units do not draw the APS per se, they bring it with them. So that is the true test of whether they're, properly maintaining that we're focused on the right things and readiness and moving it. And me, let me segue over into another piece of this, uh, Vago, because I, I, because I think that's important because it also plays into your original question about, um, you know, lessons learned. I think if we've, uh, when it came to doing a review after the invasion started in, on February 24th and we were getting ready to go into our exercise program, um, we, we took a look at the exercise program. There, there were two things that were out there. It's swift response was part of the, the Defender exercise, but we had a Defender LiveX, and then we're right now in what we call the Defender uh, CPX that's actually ongoing right now where General Cavoli is. I think it validated um, the money that's been given to us by Congress, uh, what would, you know, the European Defense Initiative funding, that allows us to, to exercise this robust exercise program. Um, you know, when you look at swift response, which was five airborne operations that took place from Norway, and we'll talk the Arctic here shortly, um, up into the Baltics, um, and then down into, um, you know, North Macedonia. And one of the original plans was actually down in the Georgia, but we had to adjust that. That reinforced the value of the exercise program and, and its focus to include everything that we did in the Defender LiveX, bringing other units from CONUS um, and the units that we had on the ground that were even rotational or as part of this deployment um, is, is, to, is to validate that the exercise program is focused on the right things because all the messages that get sent with it were, were exactly what we would want uh, from, a, from a deterrence message that gets sent. And so I've, I think, you know, that's, that's an example of how we're getting the resources that we need, but it's also a, lo- a lesson learned that reinforces that the exercise program is, is, is spot on moving in the right direction. Um, so much so that all of this had to actually go up all the way through UCOM, up to the joint staff, and then really to the NSC and the administration to make sure that it too was not too provocative and get permission to actually execute those. I'll, I'll pause there for any questions. Yeah, and I do, uh, and I know uh, our our time is uh, relatively brief, and you've got about five more minutes before you've got to go. Um, does the do the manpower? So are the manpower cuts important or less important? Like how to characterize uh, that, right? Because we're uh, in a mindset that you know we continually reduce manpower in order to sort of quote increase capability but at the end of the day you do need bodies to do all of this stuff it's it's work and work that has to get done and the army has been trying to do a good job in increasing its its tooth 
sort of shrinking its tail. But at some point, right, something's got to give. And if you just don't have the people, you don't have the people. Uh, the fighting is bogging down between Russia and Ukraine, in part because both are very bloodied. They're getting somewhat tired, although one is a country of 190 million and the other is 44 million. Do you have enough people to do what it is you need to do and you're expected to be able to deliver on going into the future? Yeah, so I, I think I go back to we've gotten the people that we've requested. So everything that we've sent up right. through, from General Covoli from the Army component through UCOM. And I think you're probably looking at the uh, the, the recent admission or the, the announcement that we're going to take a top end cut here for quality in the near term. But but none of that's in, in that's that's in place, and, and we don't feel any of the impacts of that right now. We've been resourced with exactly what we've asked for. Uh, let me take you to uh, the uh, Arctic. Uh, you were uh, the commander of U.S. Army Alaska and the deputy commanding general of the Alaska Command. Uh, general uh, McConville just reconstituted the 11th Airborne Division to be the focal point of uh, the uh, the services, but actually U.S. Arctic uh, capabilities. Uh, the Arctic and the high north have been a priority, uh, not just for the United States, but as well as the uh, alliance. You mentioned swift response. That was in uh, Norway. Uh, recently in the 425th, I think, was was part of it. Where are we in the process of rebuilding those core, uh, those kind of core skills? And how do you rate where we are in that capability development? And some of the challenges we need to prepare for as the Russians have been expanding their base structure and being uh, ever more uh, assertive, let's just say, in the Arctic as well. Yeah, great, great question. So, you know, how far are we into this? We're, we're two years into it. My, after my first year in command... Uh, General McConville was out and uh, I shared with him where we were and to make sure that there was no expectation that we were someplace different with regards to <laughs> expectations on the Arctic strategy, because much like the rest of the army, we were committed to CENTCOM. I was just receiving back a striker brigade out of Iraq and Syria. We didn't train in the winter. I had also been a brigade commander up in Alaska and we were doing what any other unit in the army would do which was either source CENTCOM or we would be focused on combat training centers um, at Fort Polk, Louisiana or Northern Wherefore or, or the National Training Center. Now, with that, when he understood that uh, we weren't doing anything different, he also understood that we were um, the, the last service to really deliver an Arctic strategy. The emphasis went on in literally six months, they turned this thing around and we paid, we contributed to the part of how do you rebuild the readiness of the army? Um, and so what we were able to do was then maximize the use of that winter, which was the winter of 20 to 21, and get units back in the field, much like that they had done in the 70s and 80s. And that was really the, the first effort where you put 6,000 soldiers in the field. We brought in all the centers of expertise in the Combined Arms Center, a lot of lessons learned to cover uh, the gaps. And that's really where they started uh, when they released the strategy to talk about operationalizing the headquarters, potentially reflagging converting these brigades to Arctic brigades. And so there was a, a roadmap that was really laid out um, in early uh, 2021. And so what you see, you know, the, uh, the 11th Airborne Division coming back, that, that's, that's one piece of it. What they also did is they said, hey, you're not gonna go to Fort Polk or, or to uh, Fort Irwin, California. You're gonna stay in Alaska and you're gonna train. So they brought an exportable, um, CTC that brought the, uh, the OCTs from Fort Polk or from Fort Irwin up to Alaska. They put in all the sensors they need to do because we have premier training areas that are up there. And so they went through this, this last year, they put the striker brigade through um, a rotation, really a CTC like rotation up in Alaska. And so that's the second winter that they've had these larger scale at echelon 
uh, training events. And then they're also the, because they stay in Alaska and train in Alaska and don't load their equipment and go elsewhere anymore. Um, they've had, they've gotten two, two years to get their legs up underneath them to rebuild that Arctic ethos and, and move in the right direction. They made the decision to divest of the strikers. So they're going to go to a uh, platforms that we commonly see in the high North here in Europe. When I mean platforms, it's the vehicles that they operate from. And uh, so it's all moving in the right direction, but some of that procurement does, does take a while, but it is, it's, it's two years of progress. That's pretty significant. Um, if you ask me for a person that's been there twice and commanded it. Let me ask you two uh, quick uh, questions. Uh, one is what are we learning from our allies and partners, uh, sir? Right. I mean, the Norwegians uh, as well as uh, partners like uh, Sweden and Finland are really, really good at Arctic warfare. Uh, what are we learning from them? Because one of the greatest attributes of the Alliance is that cross pollination. Yeah, that's, that's a fantastic question. Part of that strategy was to reestablish those relationships um, and, and we have. And so we've been up there. Brian Eifler was up there with me, the new CG. Um, and, you know, and I would tell you a swift response is kind of what fell out of some of that reestablishment of, of the relationships. And then I've spent my time up there just to go back and validate what I what I put to paper. Right. That went in as input to the Army's Arctic strategy about the approach. Um, and so there, there's a lot to learn from them. Um, but then there's also they're, they're different. They're focused from a homeland defense perspective. And we're more of a power projection global force. Um, so while we want to learn a lot of lessons from them, how to operate, thrive in the environment, we got to be equipped a little bit differently because um, the units in Alaska, while they may stay in Alaska to participate from a homeland defense perspective, it's not to sit from a fixed site or a pre-planned site, much like we did in swift response, is to be able to rapidly deploy them uh, to, to reinforce an ally or a part, partner somewhere, which much like what was designed uh, really in swift response. Um, and, and so we were learning a lot of the, the basics and fundamentals of how they're equipped, how they train and how they approach their winter training cycle. Uh, and let me ask you one last question about uh, your Saturday. Why is it important for you to be there? Well, I think it's important for uh, all allies and partners to be here um, because I think it's a great opportunity for us. Like I'll, I'll speak on a panel tomorrow about the Arctic and there's a number of other panels, multi-domain operations. I think it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's an opportunity for us to come together, right? continue to build a relationship, but then also look at these concepts and ideas to understand where they're going. And then also understand, and this is why industry being tied to this is very important um, because they get to hear where we're trying to go and then they can understand what capabilities they can deliver. And, it, you know, there's a, it's really, a, 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 there's a degree of a reciprocity in there because they can hear what it is that, that we're trying to get at. And then what they can do is then spend the next year or two going back and then bringing back some kind of capabilities. But it's a great place to kind of, I think, flatten across allies and partners from a, at least from us from a land component perspective, is to understand where doctrine is going, concepts are going, the Arctic being one of those, and then look at uh, industry and, and what solutions they can bring to the table to help us close the gaps to to get to hit some of those gates or waypoints in our strategy. And, and what do you think um, uh, some of those capabilities that you need are, right? I mean, you mentioned that you'll need a different type of equipment. I know that uh, Major General Ross Kaufman uh, at uh, the Future Combat Vehicles is looking at making sure that any vehicle that's fielded has that range to be able to operate from the beaches in the Pacific all the way up to the high north. But what are some specific equipment uh, that the United States Army is going to need in order to be able to do a better job up in that area? I think it's going to be hard to find something that can do everything. Um, and so I think in this case, this is where you're going to see the units in Alaska have some one-off equipment that's very unique to them because equipments have inherent limitations and you can't afford to put all the, 
all of the other hardware that's on there that makes it um, much more capable um, in the conditions. And you can see that in the high north and our allies and partners in the high north with some of the unique specific equipment. It's got to be, there's things that you can adapt to the Arctic and there's things that you got to specifically design for it. So I, I will tell you, uh, as an example, uh, Alaska at its, at its peak, um, before they got rid of the 6th Infantry Division, used to put 28,000 soldiers in the field every winter. Um, and they can go wherever they wanted to because they had won the training and they were equipped properly. Part of that was they had 700 small unit support vehicles, SUSVs. Those are the, the vehicles specifically designed to operate in the cold, deep snow. And, uh, you know, right now Alaska is down to less than 50. But if you go up to the high north and any of these armies up here, you're going to see that they, in some cases they run a dual fleet, but that's one of the fleets that they have. So you have to have this common platform because the problem is threefold. It's, it's extreme cold, deep snow, and the other part is uh, mountainous terrain. And so you got to have a, a unique equip, piece of equipment that can, that can operate in, in really in those three environments. Sir, uh, thanks very much. Uh, really appreciate you being so generous with your time. Really appreciate it and look forward to having you back on again uh, in the program soon. Thanks very much. Thanks, Vago. I appreciate it. As part of our virtual coverage of Eurosatory, we also spoke to Mark Darmont the Executive Vice President for Talus's Secure Communications and Information Systems Unit, a key part of the $17 billion company with 80,000 employees that ranks among the world's leading defense and aerospace contractors that produces everything spanning from battlefield networks to communications equipment and radars, missiles, space, commercial avionics, and now cyber and artificial intelligence, as well as rail systems. He is also the chairman of not only the Eurosatory show, but as well as GCOP, the French Land, Defense and Security Industry Association. Here's our conversation with Marc Darmont. Marc, bienvenue and thanks so very much for joining us from what is a very busy Eurosatory. Good morning. I want to start off. Russia's war with Ukraine has been game changing for governments as they spend more uh, on defense to improve uh, their capabilities. Is this a sustained shift in focus and investment or a temporary one? Because there is some concern that some of the governments who are very, um, you know, who called for very bold action at the beginning of this crisis are a little bit less enthusiastic as the war has ground on. What, what we can say as, uh, as suppliers to, to governments is that there is a, a, a clear increase uh, of their defense budget in a lot of countries that we know well, especially in, in, in Western Europe, uh, where it's uh, the announcement either of a strong increase of budgets or confirmation of already planned increase of budget, as in France, for instance, uh, has been confirmed. Uh, so we, I, I, will, I will not comment about what, uh, what government is doing with, with Ukraine, but I, I can comment about their uh, behavior as far as spendings are concerned, uh, where clearly there is, uh, in the same time, uh, increase of spendings, either new uh, increase of planned increase, uh, but also uh, uh, a clear shift about uh, preparation of uh, high intensity, uh, high intensity uh, fights and combats, and and so most of the uh, most of the uh, supply are, are now organized to prepare uh, more symmetrical. Uh, defense uh, subjects. I should also point out that you are the chairman of GCOT, industrial, French Defense Industrial Manufacturers uh, Group. Um, what does this um, extraordinary new focus, you know, you, you mentioned, Mark, that defense uh, spending across Europe is, is rising. What does that mean 
for Thales uh, overall, whether on the revenue side of things or strategically as Europe goes into what is uh, a dramatic change in the security environment? So what, what uh, we see, I, I, I will comment as, as a, the chairman of GCAT, so the, also I'm, I'm chairing the Eurosatory show uh, all together. Uh, what, what, what we can say, uh, first, we have the, the level of exhibitors of four years ago, which was already a record. We have a lot of new exhibitors, especially from uh, Eastern and, and North of Europe, uh, which is brand new, of course, and, and, and uh, of course, linked to the, to the uh, events at, at, at the East of Europe. Uh, we, we see also that uh, pure armament and ordnance is only a small part of the exhibitors. We have a lot of uh, exhibitors around uh, system capabilities, around digital capabilities, around uh, increasing uh, the, uh, uh, the intelligence and sensors and digital processing and data uh, orientations. That's, that's a, a real uh, trend for, for the last years. And that's what we see, I would say, as an exhibitor, because I, I, as I told you, I, I, share, I share the show. Uh, um, so, yeah. No, 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 go ahead. I'm sorry. So, so I, I'm not able to, 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 to comment about uh, the spendings in, in detail of the different countries. And I, I'm not able to comment either on, on the impact of Thales revenue. Uh, but but what, we, what is obvious is that Thales is on the right subjects, uh, on, on, the right, uh, on, on the right domains. If you take an example about the, uh, the share of uh, what Thales is doing in, in a land vehicle, for instance, to make it simple, the eyes and ears, the nerve systems and the brain, the sensors, the communication systems, uh, and the uh, battle management systems and the command and control. Uh, this used to be 10% of a land vehicle. And uh, for the brand new uh, uh, French vehicles uh, issue, we are coming from the Scorpion program, it's more 25%. And clearly the trend is going to 30 or 35%. So in, in a, in a land platform, the, the share of what uh, we do uh, around the digital and, uh, as I said, eyes and ears and nerve systems and brain, uh, this is increasing the share of a land vehicle because platforms are becoming more and more intelligent, more and more connected. And one of the big breakthroughs is a collaborative combat. Which is a, which is an excellent segue uh, to my uh, to my next question. Uh, so just uh, very briefly. So your uh, belief is that even as this spending goes up, the 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 most important part of the spending from your perspective is going to be on the battle management systems, the communications, the connectivity. That's where the most value add investment is going to be, and where the biggest opportunity for Talas opportunities for Talas are going to be. What, what I'm saying is the share of this in a, in a global defense budget is increasing. Sensors, communication and connectivity, and, and battle management system and command and control. But sensors, of course, because uh, uh, it can be uh, radars and sonars and optronics uh, and, and, and any kind of uh, sensors to, to, for the eyes and ears of all land systems. Um, it, it, it's, uh, uh, as I mentioned a moment before, it's an excellent segue because uh, Talos has just unveiled uh, it's uh, offering in 
the command and control uh, and battle management uh, space, obviously improving battlefield command and control is vital to better understand threats, uh, but also improve uh, uh, to deliver greater capability. That's why the JADC2 program, Join All Domain Command and Control is a Pentagon priority. Talk to us about your new combat digital platform and why it's different than what your competitors uh, are offering. What, what we uh, are developing with this is uh, a real, I would say, a digital twin of, of, the, of, the, of, of, the, uh, of the soldier so that he can very easily in, a, in his uh, land systems be able in the same time to lead collaborative combat, to make command and control, and to be able to bear the uh, cognitive load of a lot of data to be able to, to be efficient. Maybe, uh, Vago, if, if I can sum up what collaborative combat is in one clear sentence, uh, I give a, a simple example. And if you were at the show, you, we, we have a very attractive demonstration. One vehicle says something, another vehicle with a, with a leader decides to shoot, and the third vehicle shoots. All of this uh, in real time, uh, very fast, uh, fastly organized uh, with, uh, and, and uh, with, if um, add to, to decision with a fast exchange of data, with a, collaborate, uh, with a cloud which helps to share the compute load uh, between vehicles and, and between all the system and system of systems. So what we did is uh, on one hand, uh, coming from uh, our Scorpion program in France, but also issued from, uh, from uh, all the operational needs that we, we meet uh, uh, everywhere around the world. A collaborative combat for land combat is becoming more and more complex with more and more data with a need of fast reaction. Fast reaction can be uh, auto protection, can be uh, uh, combat and, and uh, with fast connectivity and, and big data processing, uh, what we, this combat digital platform offers a lot of div different features. I, I should also point out to the audience uh, that Talos has been uh, involved in this space for many, many years with the Feline uh, system, uh, both uh, on the uh, infantry side of things, all the way to, as you mentioned, Mark, uh, the Scorpio system. Uh, you know, one of um, the strategic shifts that Talos has made has been increasing investment in cyber information technology and artificial intelligence capabilities, arguing that that's at the core of all future commercial and, and defense solutions, even if uh, the, the market ha has, uh, or some analysts have not been as supportive of that strategy. How is that investment paying off in terms of new products like the new combat platform? First, you are right to say that we, we have been investing in uh, artificial intelligence, big data processing and cybersecurity for because it, it is used and it has a huge impact on all Thales business, which is a digital business for demanding customers. So it is for defense, but it is also for security. It is for transport and aerospace. In all these fields, these are, I would say, discriminant technologies. So you're right to say that we have been investing a lot in, in uh, digital security and cyber security. Uh, a, a lot of investments in the last years uh, uh, Vormetric, Gemalto, uh, SafeNet in, in the past. And you're right, to, you're right to state that. For the combat digital platform, as an example, uh, and in general in collaborative combat, all of these systems are first to be cyber secured by design. And, and secondly, as to be fully aligned with a, I would say, digital trust concept where you can trust nobody 
and uh, uh, a complete isolation of a system is not possible. So we need to, to have the, 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 the identity management and data security management on, on real time. And that's exactly what we do in the commercial world when we secure identity and, and, and security for a, a SIM card in a, in a phone or a pay card for Visa or, or, or MasterCard. Is that the same technology of managing identity, managing rights, or who is able to do what? To do what? And in collaborative combat, where you have data coming from everywhere, where uh, you have a, a cognitive workload which is huge on every people, you need edit decision, and you did through uh, through a cybersecurity by design concept to to be able to to be sure that we have a cybersecure system. Um, let me ask you one last uh, question. Um, any alliance-wide capability like this, the biggest challenge is making sure that all the nations are on the same page when it comes to national requirements. How are you guys envisioning what the future of a broader multinational combat system uh, looks like? Uh, you were one of, uh, Talos was one of the AXE uh, contractors for the NATO command and control uh, system. Um, talk to us a little bit about how you're going to be able to build this so that nations can very, very easily be able to participate in it, given that individual national standards can become quite a challenge for any, I mean, as the United States is finding in its JADC2 concept, even among the US military services, there are challenges getting them all on the same page. Very, very interesting question. I, I, I will answer by steps. First, everybody needs to understand that encrypt a communication between two people, that's very easy. What is difficult is to be able to manage correctly who is allowed to do what, who is able and allowed to communicate with whom. And to manage multi-level security or different rights between different actors in a system, in a complex system, this is what is complicated. And that's exactly your question because we need security and encryption and confidentiality at a national level, with several levels, by the way, but we need also to be able to engage in coalition at several levels of clearance. And this is exactly what is complex to organize and where I think we have a strong added value to be able to manage, to handle in the same time, several levels of clearance at the national level and several levels of clearance as a multinational and coalition level with a pragmatic and ergonomic ways of management of identities and keys. I hope it makes sense. Thank you. Uh, absolutely, Mark. Thank you so much for uh, taking so much time with us. I know your time has been very, very short at a very busy show. We really appreciate it and look forward to seeing you uh, very soon, uh, hopefully in Paris, and if not at Paris, then at Farnborough. Thanks so much for the time and uh, and uh, best of luck on the show. Thank you, Vago. And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report and check us out on LinkedIn and stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship, and we'll see you again tomorrow.